Welcome to Michael Stone's podcast, Awaken the World. This podcast is part of an online community library we're developing, one that contains podcasts, videos, transcripts and booklets based on Michael's talks. The goal of this library and this podcast is to bring mindfulness and mental health into the spotlight. Through this work, we're creating new ways to wake up through socially engaged, conscious, spiritual practice. We're creating a culture of compassion and collaboration. We've left our physical monasteries and we're bringing them online. Before we get to today's podcast, I want to take a moment to ask you to consider becoming a patron of this podcast through Patreon. Pledging is easy and can be as little as $1 per month. Just go to patreon.com forward slash Michaelstone and click on the big orange button on the top right of the page. Thank you for listening. So, good evening. <clears throat> Before the first class tonight, people were so chatty. <laughs> and then it was nice to feel the energy settle for this phase of the evening. Sometimes when I feel the room really settled, I just want to keep sitting until 8.30. I'll take a copy too. So, it seems like it's spring. Uh, I was just in Regina, I just came home. I actually took a day off and went to Moose Jaw. Sat in a hot spring inside a casino. (laughs) Which is actually more interesting than a hot spring on the side of a mountain. Um, I lay there all afternoon looking at all the flags from all the different countries, mm-hmm. trying to figure out what country has a flag with a parrot on it. <laughs> and two nights in a row I dreamed of parrots. <laughs> it's Dominican Republic, thanks to Google. <laughs> um, so anyways, I thought I'd start with a poem tonight. <clears throat> For those who wait only for flowers to bloom, I wish I could show them the spring grass under the snow of a mountain village. For those who wait only for flowers to bloom, I wish I could show them the spring grass under the snow of a mountain village. Written by an anonymous Japanese poet, probably 17th century. And um, for those who wait only for flowers to bloom, that's us. (laughs) Is that you right now? And I actually thought this poem really captures something about what we're about to delve into uh, in this last 
part of the arc of the first chapter of the Yoga Sutra, where Patanjali has been laying out um, a lot of different aspects of the practice, and now he's going to drop into probably um, the deepest layers of the whole text, which is what samadhi actually is. And I think this is interesting for a lot of us because we can really relate, I think, to when he talks about working with laziness and working with doubt and working with depression and how depression and the inability to maintain steadiness of posture or breathing is a direct result of other disturbances. I think for most of us, we can relate to that in our practice. Um, But now he's getting into some subtle stages of meditation And I just want to ask you that even if it's not your experience, just to try on some of what he's talking about. Some people think that you shouldn't study uh, detailed descriptions of meditative stages until you're actually working with those stages, because then you have an idea about what can happen in meditation that can then um, obscure um, what's actually going on in your meditation practice. I think there's a place for that, but I also think it's really good to remember that under the surface distractions of consciousness, a lot of us don't really know what the map is like or what the field is like underneath that. Um, It's really interesting when people first start going on retreat and getting quiet enough after a few days to start to see that under all that surface distraction, there are many different paths. It's like one of the things I think of in this poem is um, when I go up north, uh, there's, a, there's a place I go to a lot. And when the snow first melts and you can see the grasses again, there are all these tracks through the grasses that you could never see in the snow because moles or whatever, I think different animals make different kinds of track. Um, they, they're doing a lot under the snow. And you can't see any of that, and they do that, so birds can't see them either. Um, And then when the snow thaws, there's all these paths. And it's interesting in deeper states of concentration, or even just in natural stillness, without technique, it's like doors start opening, and we see certain parts of our life in a way maybe we never saw before. Or we see certain ways that we can concentrate where we can uh, go really, really deep. Uh, Maybe even to seeing things as, you know, the pixels that they are. Or sometimes we go into phases of stillness where um, we just have a feeling of deep connection. And so I think when we're new to that, it all seems really, whoa, what's happening, you know? And, uh, And then to sometimes read texts and learn how someone's mapped a lot of this territory out. And uh, Carl Jung said this about humans. I don't remember the exact quote, but something like, the way humans can know so much about how to get to the moon and outer space, and so little about pathways that are that uh, deep internally. And so I think this next phase of the Yoga Sutra reminds us of how there are stages of awareness that you can't just get to by thinking about them. And uh, I hope that this is inspiring for you to explore some of this. Some people think about samadhi kind of like, you know, watching the Olympics or something. You know when you watch the Olympics 
I don't know if you ever have this feeling watching figure skating or something. It's like, wow, that the human body can do that. This is something the human body can do. I'm never going to do that. But isn't it nice to know? <laughs> Maybe some of you feel this way in yoga class sometimes. <laughs> wow, this is what the human body can do. I'm not ever going to do that, but it's nice to... And actually, sometimes when you watch yoga postures really closely in another person's body, you can actually feel them in your own body. Um, when I'm working on new postures um, in my own practice, sometimes at night I'll have dreams about them when I'm not dreaming about parrots in the Dominican <laughs> Republic. And, um, and then it's almost like I've worked out the posture in my body through dreaming. And then the next day when I go onto the mat, uh, it's there. And it's almost like somehow my body has been working on it all night. And I'm sure people who do like dance or some other performances, you can sort of work something out unconsciously and then it's kind of ready to go. So uh, maybe sometimes, you know, I get this way sometimes when I am reading about what neuroscience is doing, all these experiments with people who can enter deep states of meditation. And sometimes the way I think about it is that it's really interesting as if I'm watching the Olympics. Like someone has devoted their whole life to just concentrating. And they can do these amazing things that you can watch on an MRI. And because it's on an MRI, somehow it seems more true. You know. But also to remember, too, that um, before the Buddha was enlightened, um, he had two yogi teachers. And... Um, one of them uh, taught him really deep stages of concentration and different levels of samadhi. And he was actually quite unsatisfied with being able to reach those states of samadhi because he still felt that, and these were just the states that he entered at that time, later he discovered more. But he felt that in just deep states of concentration, there was still something left over. And what was left over was a watcher or a witness. And this way that you can concentrate and still kind of be back and watch that you're concentrating kind of put a flag up for him that there was still more to pursue there in meditation. And it's interesting to look back now at the way the Buddha taught meditation because he didn't start with concentration techniques. He started just with paying attention to what's here. Uh, his first teaching in the Four Foundations of Mindfulness is breathing in and breathing out. And if the breath is long, let it be long. And if it's short, let it be short. In other words, giving attention to what's actually here right now. And likewise, in the Yoga Sutra, Patanjali teaches that the definition of yoga is not misidentifying with the contents of consciousness which wakes us up to what's right here what's right here so that there's no residue of a watcher and I think we all know this right have you ever had the experience where you know you're really present with something maybe you're quite joyful you're at a birthday it's your birthday party someone made you a cake you can't believe like, you know, someone made you a cake and then, you know, you blow out the candles and it's just this beautiful moment and then you become aware that you're having the moment. And then as soon as you're aware, 
that you're having the moment, this, there's a watcher, and then you're kind of apart from it. And this is what uh, Patanjali calls dukkha, which lately I've been thinking about as tragedy, self-created tragedy, separation, alienation. I want to say one more thing about Samadhi before we look at the text. Um, I'm, em- I'm editing a book right now, and uh, uh, it's almost done. It's going to be finished tomorrow. And uh, one of the chapters is just excellent, written by Mu Song, who is the scholar in residence at the Berry Center for Buddhist Studies, which is in Massachusetts. And um, he, he wrote a wonderful chapter about the way that we can take any technique from any tradition and commodify it. And um, I just want to read this little caveat before we read Patanjali. It's three paragraphs, so close your eyes. I sometimes wish like we could smoke. <laughs> not that we would light it, but just that everybody could have a cigarette. And kind of, you know what I mean? But it would just look so stupid if you couldn't light it. But I don't know. For a second, I thought I could read this and everybody could just... (laughs) Never mind, I said. Last week, I was in Montreal before I was in Regina. It's like, after I give a talk, everyone goes outside and smokes. And I'm just like, yes. (laughs) Yes, civilized. Yeah. And then we do pranayama practice. (laughs) If the purpose of philosophy or religion is to shape the lives of individuals so they may live together more harmoniously and creatively as a society, then the function of restraint and renunciation championed by both yoga and Buddhism is civilizational in the sense of shaping the lives of individuals and society through simplicity and non-attachment. The premise of restraint and renunciation calls upon individuals to let go of their inherited religious dogmas and ideology, to let go of the impulse to exploit and harm others, to let go of the desire to maximize one's pleasure at the expense of others, and to focus instead on the ethical cohesion of daily living. In this argument, an ethically cohesive individual is a healthy individual who becomes both the cause and effect of a healthy society. The Buddhist and yoga traditions both warn repeatedly against the danger of greed, hatred, and delusion, and promote a culture of restraint and renunciation as a counterbalance to these dangers. But if the promoters of Buddhism or yoga in the contemporary marketplace use the familiar but unexamined drives of greed to promote their own product, when the culture is already permeated in greed, the end result will likely be both of these traditions become passive fads in the great streaming of American consumerism. In the unexamined patterns of defining themselves as service providers, the spiritual entrepreneurs in both traditions end up marginalizing the larger role these traditions can possibly play in the shaping of culture. 
Right now, it seems we all need the counter, all the counterweight we can gather to meet the challenge of unbridled greed promoted by American consumerism. You might say, is this just Michael's way of being able to insert some left-wing politics? <laughs> um, and the answer is yes. Um, I say this because I think sometimes what happens that makes me very uncomfortable in meditation communities is that people start studying samadhi and they just see it as this way that they can get concentrated to undo their own patterns of greed and hatred and delusion. But then we all participate in a culture and by participating in a culture you can unconsciously support institutionalized forms of greed and hatred and delusion. And I really think that samadhi is actually a counterbalance so that when we start to work with deeper states of concentration, two things happen. One is our reactivity really decreases. And as a corner of the culture or as a participating citizen, your ability to work with your patterns of reactivity is so important as a counterbalance to these times of such intense consumerism. But secondly, being able to work with our own reactivity also gives us some wisdom to see the way reactivity operates in other people and also in institutions. And so as we start to, to work together to start to understand what samadhi might be in Patanjali's framework and in your meditation practice, and in your life, to also just read between the lines and maybe we can even wonder together what this has to do with civilization, with culture. Um, these practices are a civilizational matrix. They're a practice of cultural awakening, not just individual awakening. And I think it's really important to understand samadhi in this way, that it's not just about your singular awakening but it's about how that impacts on those around us and how what's around us impacts on us. So in a way, it's a profound thing to be able to work with our own reactivity when we look at it from a more social perspective. So I thought that was important to say before we go further. Because uh, some people hear about samadhi and they just think they better go start doing that so they can wake up. And... Uh, we all need to wake up. Yeah. Okay, so let's uh, take out the yoga sutra. Maybe you can share it if you don't have a copy. As the patterning of consciousness subsides, this is where we left off last week, a transparent way of seeing called samapati saturates consciousness like a jewel it reflects equally whatever lies before it whether subject, object or act of perceiving so what that means is um, when we start to notice um, patterns of thought of feeling, of sensation um, and our reaction to what's showing up then we can still keep talking to ourselves about it. 
we can still stay caught in reactivity just through a lot of storytelling. But then you can kind of take a step back and watch both the object and our reaction to the object. So, for example, um, a strong sensation can arise, right? And there's reaction to the sensation. And then we can react to the sensation and talk to ourselves about our reaction to the sensation and still be in consciousness. So we're conscious, but still not be in awareness. You see? I think I gave the example, I gave a ridiculous example last week about going, uh, being in an addiction. I won't repeat the whole example, but you know, being in an addictive state, I don't know if anyone here has ever had this before, it happens apparently more in Parkdale, but maybe a little bit around here too. And, uh, and while you're in that state, you're talking to yourself about what, how what you're doing is bad, and this is going to, you know. So this is all consciousness working with consciousness. But Patanjali is saying that you can actually watch that, and that the watching of that, it's almost as if the watcher is not moved at all by the watching of it. Does this make sense? So he sets up a vocabulary where you have coalescence or samadhi. Uh, the, the word also is samapati, which actually, interestingly enough, etymologically in Sanskrit means coincidence. Um, and I think I like this because there's a sense that it kind of arises by itself. Or maybe it's not that awareness arises by itself, but that it's just always there. It's always there ticking in the background. So because he sets up this vocabulary where there's awareness watching consciousness, two things happen. The first is, this is where Western psychology and yoga totally depart. Because for yoga, consciousness is not something that's always present. Like we say, because there is consciousness, the eye can see a form. But in this, in the yogic model, when the eye and the form come together, there's consciousness, and then it falls away. And every time an object, a sense object, and a sense organ meet each other, you get a moment of consciousness. But there's nothing that attaches them in time and space. But then watching all that is awareness. This makes sense? And this kind of explains what a lot of us feel sometimes, where you say, I'm aware of something, and yet you're still totally in it. And yet, there's an awareness that's even further back that can watch that, that doesn't take any shape. And when that awareness is watching, there's no reactivity. This is the hypothesis. Okay? The second part of that is now he sets up a huge problem. Can you tell the, it's an ontological problem he sets up, which is, well then, if consciousness is impermanent, then awareness is permanent, and then it's a thing. And then, now he's got to get out of this, somehow. Because if it's a thing, then it's God, right? Or it's the soul, or whatever word you use. But, so he's in a, he's in a bit of a conundrum here. And now he's got to tell the meditator that awareness just awares. It's not actually a thing. 
It's not inside you. It's not outside you. It's not beyond you. It's not not beyond you. It's not not beyond not beyond you. (laughs) And he's going to have to do this so that you don't think there's a watcher left that's watching all this. Because it's not verifiable. It's bad science. And it's bad language. Because it makes you feel that there's a you and there's something eternal. And this is the whole dualistic framework that he's trying to work through. And if you don't get that piece, then there's nothing radical about Patanjali. If you don't get what he's trying to do here, then there's nothing different about what he's saying than any of the Upanishads or the Vedas. He's right here at this point trying to push you to to see something. Is this clear? No? Are there any questions? So just, just try this on a little bit, because I know this is, this is, the text gets kind of heavy here. <laughs> so long as conceptual or linguistic knowledge pervades this transparency, it is called coalescence with thought. This is the first stage of samadhi. At the next stage, called coalescence beyond thought, objects cease to be colored by memory, now formless, only their essential nature shines forth. Okay? So let me give you an example. You're sitting still, or sorry, there is sitting still, and... um, some feelings arise, okay? Let's say they're feelings of grief, you know, some sadness. And then usually spring-loaded inside those feelings are two things. One is reactions to those feelings. So the reaction is, I I don't really, this is not a good time to feel that. (laughs) And so go away. (laughs) Or we also know that if we feel that feeling a lot and will it away, then we don't even get that part. We just get eating. (laughs) Right? Like like you're eating suddenly (laughs) and not hungry and you don't even know that you didn't feel something. Right? Some people are so far out of their body that they don't even know anything's happening until they've finished eating. And then it's like, you miss the eating, you miss the reaction, you miss the feeling, right? And next thing you know, you're totally full. (laughs) And going back to the fridge again. Um, But what he's saying here is that when when you notice the reaction, but you're still commenting about it, even if you have a concept about it, that's not samadhi, okay? So in dharana, which is the sixth limb, sixth limb of Ashtanga Yoga, which is mindfulness practice, you notice an object, you notice feeling, you come back to it. Notice the reaction, come back to what you're feeling. Notice the stories we spin, come back. This is the meditation practice we all know, right? 
Yes? We all know how to come, come back, right? You're feeling something, it's, it's really uncomfortable, and if you stay with your breathing, you can stay with the feeling and let it show up. And every time you get distracted, you just keep coming back again. This is what's present. Okay? But now, Patanjali is saying something else. He's saying, if you really want to become one with that feeling, then there can't be concepts or linguistic thought. In other words, what would it mean to feel what you're feeling without a concept about it? Could you imagine this? And he's saying, if you can do that, that's the thing that's going to distinguish the difference between awareness and consciousness. Conscious is always conscious of something. Awareness is just... To be conscious, there always has to be an object. Can you open up to feeling and become one with it without knowing about it? That's so hard. (laughs) That's That's so hard. And maybe it's years of dharana practice before you can really start to know what that is. To really be able to open up without um, language. And then when you get a glimpse of it, you see something really interesting, which is that everything you have to say about what you're experiencing is memory. It's from the past. Everything you can say about what just happened is from the past. And just noticing that is the second stage of samadhi. Are you following this? So so the first stage of samadhi is coalescence with thought. Right? So you you notice that you're opening to something, but there's thought there. But you can still see how it's possible to go through it. And then you see the thought is related to memory. And then the next stage is coalescence beyond thought. The object ceases to be colored by memory, now formless, only its essential grief is present. Essential grief, essential loneliness, essential boredom, essential anger, essential hurt, essential envy, essential greed, pure greed. Can you feel greed without being greedy for something? Right. This is a cool little trick you can do. The next time you're... You can do this with anything. Anger. When you're angry, try not having an object for your anger. Just feeling angry. When you're greedy, just try giving up the object of your greed and just feel this is greed. This is greed. And then notice, oh, well, if I keep telling myself this is greed, then actually it shuts down the feeling a little bit. And then just don't talk to yourself. (laughs) That's what I mean, that there's something that's like, on one level, the meditator, a retreat practitioner, is doing one thing with this. But every day we can also learn something about this. 
even if your your life is not a retreat person, there's something you can see here about your psychology. What what does this say for those of us in psychoanalysis? Right? Like constantly operating under the belief that if you can talk your way back into a pattern, you'll find the root source of it. And Patanjali is saying, no, you just keep repeating consciousness. That's consciousness, consciousness, consciousness. And we also know that sometimes, especially those of you who are therapists, you know this, that sometimes really deep moments of transformation in people and healing don't happen with words. It's just like something shifts and you both know. And there wasn't really... Yeah. In the same way, coalesced contemplation of subtle objects is described as reflective or reflection-free. So, again, you know, there's nothing, nothing's hitting the object, nothing's reflecting off of it, it's just reflective, reflect, reflective, reflection-free. It's just the essential nature of the object. Questions, comments? Uh-huh. So is he equating reflective with reflection-free? Yeah. Okay. Yeah. Not different. Okay. Yeah. Uh, wait. I wasn't clear. Equating in terms of... Is reflective as opposed to reflection-free? Just, just think of it as nothing bouncing off. Okay, yeah. Yeah, there's nothing bouncing off the object. Mm-hmm. Just the object, free... understand how to feel great if there's nothing to feel great about. Like how that happens. Yeah. I, I think it was it last year. I can't remember where it was when it was when we were we were studying. I don't remember what it was. Uh, something about desire and craving. I think it was I think it was when we were studying that that a single excellent night. Do you remember that? You probably don't, because that was the theme of a single excellent night, remember? That none of the monks remembered it? Does anybody remember that? It's like for the first two pages, the Buddha's saying, does anybody, or Ananda's saying, does anybody remember when we did that teaching on a wonderful excellent night? We're saying, nope. (laughs) He asks again, you were there. Don't you remember? Nope. And then he says, but wasn't it a single excellent night? Anyways, I think it was that night. We we were talking about um, desire. And I remember trying to think up a homework assignment for people. And the assignment that we came up, I came up with was uh, find something in your life that you really, really want. You know, one person it was, uh, they wanted to put a back porch on their house. That was like the thing they really wanted. Somebody else, it was something in a window. 
like a dining room table or something that they saw. And uh, find that thing that really gets you wanting. And then contemplate it. And instead of focusing on the object of what you want, just open up to what it feels like to want. And you watch, your mind keeps going, like, to the object, like, oh, you know, I should get that dress, it's so beautiful. No, I shouldn't get the, it was made in China, and I shouldn't buy that, it's probably got formaldehyde in it. I'm not going to buy that, I'm not going to buy the dress. And then you kind of talk yourself out of it a little bit with consciousness. That's consciousness operating on consciousness, and it does nothing to work with the desire. It worked you out of a way, it worked you out of a problem, or not, which is, you know, you're now you're not buying the dress because it's not with your politics and blah, blah, blah. But, like, you never really worked with what it feels like to just desire. So you're saying that... It's kind of, I think, what people feel when it's, they're, like, in an impossible love situation. <laughs> right? It's like, you can't have the object. And then so you focus so much on not being able to have the object... <laughs> that sometimes you actually don't really even feel anything. You're just so busy talking to yourself about how you can't have it that you kind of manufacture feelings around it. And it's actually a lot more efficient if you can really just feel it. But it sucks. Because <laughs> it's like way better to just have a story. But that feeling did come from not wanting the... I'm, I'm confused if you're saying the feeling just exists. Or... That... I feel yeah. like the feelings initiated from that desire of the object. Like it, that you mean it comes from the side of the object? <laughs> the dress is making you want it. <laughs> it doesn't matter. <laughs> it doesn't matter which side it comes from. It's in, you're feeling it. The dress doesn't feel like she doesn't want me. <laughs> Okay, that, and that's fine to say that. You can say that the feeling of wanting is conditioned, like everything else, on the coming together of dress, your eyes, your body, your feeling at that, that day, your mood, and memory. Mm-hmm. Right? If you didn't have some memory about what you, you know, what you could do with that dress... It wouldn't like you, you wouldn't be thinking about it in that way. Or a projection. Or you Same dress. thing. So so yes, the feeling is conditioned by the dress being there. Yes, definitely. But you're still feeling it. So you're asking me to let go of the dress and just feel. Is that is that the homework? That was the homework last year. <laughs> something totally different. <laughs> Out having an object of grief, and I don't, I don't know. Yeah. Like that object existed. Then I let it go, but I still feel the grief. But I don't know how to do it if there was no object in the first place. Just say to yourself, "What is the? What does this feel like? This okay? This is. This is not jealousy. This is not. Oh, this is greed. Oh, this is what greed feels like. Oh." really want that dress oh wanting this is like just checking in and getting to know what these feelings feel like without like analyzing the thing you're feeling and focusing out there on the object and this is what pratyahara is right 
This is what this is what pulling back the the hungry sense organs from their objects is all about. You can see here how the limbs all come together. Like this is pratyahara, it's dharana, it's dhyana. This is ethics, right? And just pulling it back. Oh, this is what this feels like. Instead of like um, just analyzing and analyzing the dress, trying to work it out somehow. It's hard for those of us who are kind of intellectual because uh, it's hard for me, I mean. <laughs> because like when something's going on for me, when there's a lot of feeling, I, the first thing I do is try and figure it out. Like, I don't think about just like actually like, what does this feel like? I, I try and figure it out somehow. And, uh, and there's a place for that, and there's also not a place for that too. And it's important to be able to do both. Yeah. This is not anti-thinking, but it's also saying, but there are ways you can work out deeper patterns that don't have so much to do with thinking. Yeah. In in his I don't know is it fourteen teachings on mindfulness that Thich Nhat Hanh does. Um, the one on anger is amazing, because what he says is to meditate on who you think is the cause of your anger, and then to take care of your anger. And I like that little play there where, you know, he's he's messing with you. Saying, don't meditate on who caused your anger, on who you think caused your anger. Because you can't say, you can't say the anger's all yours. Just like the dress, right? Like, something did, is there that is helping you. I mean, a lot of, like in Tibetan Buddhism, they get so, sometimes a bit too far on this side, saying that it has nothing to do with the object. But, come on, I mean, you know, someone just said something really awful to you. And that condition created... Anger. Both sides created the anger. But you have to deal with it. Because that side might not deal with it. Yeah. Good luck. <laughs> I was going to keep going, but I think we'll, we'll wait. Because I, we've covered a lot. And what he's about to do now is say that there are also states of concentration where there's such stillness that nothing happens. And uh, next week will be our field trip without going anywhere. And then the week after we'll come back to this. And, uh, but in the meantime, I really hope that what you're hearing here, which is a very unconventional interpretation of this part of the text, is that this is not just instruction for somebody who is an ascetic, for somebody who is living in a cave, or for somebody who's in a monastery who has hours and hours every day to sit. This is also instruction for you in your everyday life so that you can work with the habits that exhaust you so that you can become a more creative and awake person which is a cultural practice, a civilizational practice, um, not a solo practice to get enlightened. Sorry. Patanjali hasn't said anything about enlightenment. So, 
let's just drop that whole idea <laughs> for like a few thousand years <laughs> and see what happens. Christopher Hitchens would like that so much. Let's finish by chanting. <laughs>